The Performance Lab podcast would like to acknowledge that the land on which we learn and work is the land of the Lenape, Wappinger, and Muncie people. The Performance Lab podcast is invested in the sharing of knowledge and cultivation of curiosity between makers. We invite guest artists to lead a workshop with the MFA candidates of Sarah Lawrence College, after which we interview them. We ask questions tailored to their individual practice, delving deeper into the how and the why of creation. Inspiration is all around us, but how do we hone in on the subjects that drive us? They share with us their tips, tricks, and sources of inspiration. Reflect on past performances slash projects. And keep us up to date on what is next. Stay tuned for the Performance Lab podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Performance Lab podcast. My name is Jillian. I'm a first-year grad in the theater program here at Sarah Lawrence College. And my name is Andrew, and I am a second-year grad here in the theater MFA program at Sarah Lawrence College. And today we have with us Miguel Gutierrez. Hi, Miguel. Hello. <laughs> Amazing. I'm going to give a little intro for Miguel before we get started. So Miguel Gutierrez is a choreographer, composer, performer, singer, writer, educator, and arts advocate who has lived in New York for over 20 years. Over their three-decade career, Miguel has been presented in more than 60 cities around the world in venues like Impulse Tance, American Realness, and the Whitney Biennial. He's received support from numerous foundations, including a Guggenheim Fellowship and as a 2016 Doris Duke artist, and won four Bessie Awards. His essay, Does Abstraction Belong to White People, is one of the most viewed essays on Bond's website. Miguel's current projects include a collection of writings, an album of songs, and a podcast that looks at the ethical entanglements of dance making and philanthropy. Did I get everything right, Miguel? You absolutely nailed it on the head. All those things. And all those things. I need to stop. <laughs> it took a long, I really like that your actual bio is like seven pages long. So I this know, is it's like, <laughs> so, it's such, a, it's such a, like an ego disaster <laughs> bio. Anyway. So you just had a, a wonderful grad lab with us the other day. Um, can you tell us about your process and maybe the listeners about what you had us do that day? Sure. Um, so among my many hats, I also am certified as a Feldenkrais Method practitioner, Feldenkrais is a kind of mind, body, education, somatic education system, although Feldenkrais himself never really uses the term somatic or mind, body, I think, from what I remember. And so I led the group through kind of the Feldenkrais lesson that I always introduce people to Feldenkrais with, which is a very kind of simple um, floor sequence. And then we went into some other more Miguel Gutierrez <laughs> oriented practices like continuous movement practice. And then we did something called instant performance, which is a thing that I have been doing for several years now where people just basically create a performance on the spot. I respond and then they respond to my response. And so it's kind of this discursive way of thinking through doing something, but I don't use the term improvisation for it. I use this term instant performance because I think of it like instant coffee. Like maybe it's not quite the real thing, but it will do the trick <laughs> in the in the moment. Yeah, I mean, my sort of charge from Caden had been like, he was really desiring to find ways of getting you guys in your bodies. Uh, and so, you know, because of course I teach all kinds of things, um, but when, when he kind of, laid that out I was like okay I know what to do 
yeah, so how long have you been a Feldenkrais practitioner? Is that what it's called? Yeah, the Feldenkrais mm -hmm. method. Method practitioner, practitioner yeah. Um, it, since 2015 is when I finished okay. the program, yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the relationship between that practice and your performance practice? Yeah, it's kind of funny because it's a bit elusive. So Feldenkrais as a kind of physical activity is quite slow and gentle. And there's two facets of the work, the awareness through movement work, which is what we did as a group class. And then there's one-on-ones, which are called functional integration uh, lessons, uh, where you meet with a practitioner and they have like a sort of massage table, but it's a little bit lower and wider than the conventional massage table. And you're very gently manipulated through touch and direction. Uh, it's a very non-invasive, though, uh, sort of physical intervention. And I came to the method because of ongoing injury, and I was looking for a way of interacting with all kinds of people, not just folks coming from dance. You know, I've been teaching dance and dance classes and improvisation for, for a long time. And about around the time of like 2010, my father was in the hospital for several months and I sort of saw how he was dealt with by the physical therapists and I thought, you know, it would be nice to have a way of dealing with people who are in compromised physical situations that is a lot more mindful and respectful than what they're usually uh, given, even though, of course, some of the PTs were great. So that kind of inspired me. Those injury and my dad's situation both kind of led me into the work. And when I started to study the work, what was really exciting for me was to realize that a lot of the ideological tenets of the work were things that I actually already believed, you know? So this idea that you work with people kind of from where they are, right? So not some sort of idealized idea of who they are, but like right from where they are, <laughs> you work with what they can do first, not what they can't do. So it's not a path, it's not a pathologizing uh, practice and it's not a diagnostic practice. And that your, your means of work is movement, right? So that also appeal, all of those things appeal to me. And how that translates into my work, it's not uh, from a formal perspective in terms of the work that I make doesn't look like what we do in Feldenkrais per se, because my work is tends to be a lot more active physically or more aggressive, even though Feldenkrais is quite gentle. But as a director, I absolutely uh, adhere to these ideas of like, okay, you meet the performer that you're working with, kind of where they are, you see what they're good at, you try to amplify what they're good at. And, you know, there's a generally a kind of tone in the room of like, this person is capable, right? My work uh, when I'm interacting with others and even myself, if I, if I can be that kind to myself <laughs> in a solo practice to think through like, well, what is, what is able to happen to not sit here and just catalog all the things that this person can't do? It makes me think about the word rigor, which also, which also makes me think about the word labor, which is something that you've talked about a lot sort of in relationship to your work, both inside of the, you know, the pieces that you've made, there's a lot of, oftentimes like a lot of physical labor required of the performers, sometimes of the audience members. Um, and then also uh, like sort of the labor around the making of art. And that like, you know, even literally is in the show Age and Beauty part two, like we see all of that labor, like both in and outside of the performance. So that is one of the reasons why I'm interested in this question around like how much, how much effort we expend, how much rigor we, uh, how are we engaging with rigor and labor? And I'm, I'm curious, sort of coming out of the last year and a half, like how has your relationship to labor shifted? <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I think that those two things are different in a way. I mean, in Feldenkrais, there's a, I mean, not to keep talking about Feldenkrais so much, but like there's a real value in in rest and in ease, right? There's a kind of anti-capitalist, anti-production oriented way of thinking that's happening in that work, which was very much a product of its, of its uh, time of when it was coming up, which was, you know, mid 20th century, kind of post-industrial revolution, post-World War II, a sort of real skepticism in automation, a real skepticism in what blind, uh, following does to a nation, to a people, to their capacity to realize their human potential. Plus, it was the sort of uh, century of the self, right? The emergence of the single subject, <laughs> psychological self in, you know, psychology, in theater, actually, you know, in all these different kinds of uh, practices. Um, but then my work, yes, like you said, it does go into this much more intense direction often right and and one of the things i like about feldenkrais is it says if you know what you're doing you can do what you want so there's not a prescription of like because we've worked easefully <laughs> in this lesson now you have to go and make something that's like easeful in product that's not necessarily the correlation that's being asked you know in terms of just like sheer physical activity during the pandemic it is like severely <laughs> shrunk i'm not somebody who like went into like you know super rigorous garage workout program <laughs> like i was like oh wow everyone's stopping so too will i you know like i kind of just really took the took the break and then also there was the whole issue of the fact that a lot i lost a lot of work so any prospects of like travel for work just were like off the table literally from one week to the next and so i i ended up getting a teaching gig well i had actually already had a teaching gig for the year but and then i decided to go back to school so then i was literally just like in front of my computer all the time sitting in a chair for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, and hours a day which has you know aided and abetted my screen addiction which already was an issue as it is for all of us so it's interesting because I started working in a studio a few uh, a few weeks ago again, like a dance space. I have a residency through Movement Research this year in the city, and it's very strange to go back in the studio now. Uh, and I'm kind of like going to the studio and then sitting on my computer. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, I'm supposed to be like moving around. So every now and then I'm like, I'll get up and I'll do a couple things. And then that's like, that actually feels really like satisfying. But that's like five minutes, you know, and I'm like, well, that was a great use of these three hours of time I had, you know, in a few weeks, I'll be working with a, with a performer. So I think that'll probably change the stakes a lot because I think I kind of just need someone else in the room. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's always been a question for me about effort and labor. And I have a very like uh, love hate relationship with the idea of it in work, even because, you know, something I say in one of my older pieces, uh, the problem with dancing is that like, you don't, it like I can't remember exactly how we word it, but it's like you don't actually have to like labor. Like often, labor is the is a is a kind of metric by which we gauge worth in performance and dance. But just a performance where people are like burning a lot of calories doesn't automatically make it a good performance, right? So we know this. So you know, and that's something that I struggle with because I tend to. I'll start a show, making a show being like, okay, this is going to be the show that's like easy. <laughs> and then, you know, by the end of the show, it's like, you know, we're sweating buckets and I'm like, oh my God, this was supposed to be the easy show. What the fuck's wrong with me? So yeah. Yeah. We have our, we have our patterns, right? <laughs> no matter. Sort absolutely, of yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, or like we make a plan, God laughs kind of thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Something I'd love to ask about is you're so multifaceted and you create all these things. 
I know I fall back on the habit sometimes, and I know other performers do as well. So I'm wondering, is there one of the things that you do that you sometimes find yourself gravitating towards first? And what suggestions would you give to an artist who does that, who kind of like, well, this is where I'm comfortable. I'd love to try everything, but they keep finding themselves in that one initial thing they feel comfortable in. I try to just do whatever feels like it's important to do in that moment. And, you know, there's times when I've been in this dance studio, but I'm like working on a song, right? I'm just sitting in front of my computer recording a little song or something. Or, And there's been times that I've made dances like in my apartment uh, or I was, I was every now and then dancing in the park over the last year, like not for public, you know, I mean, people saw me, but it wasn't like intended to be a performance or anything like that. I was just wanted to like move around. I think that one of the sort of confusions that I have in life is that like, and I reached out, oh, sorry, one other thing I'll say is I recently started renting a little art studio space. So I have this dance studio residency. And then I also just started renting a smaller art studio space because I'm in a uh, I'm in a studio art MFA program right now through the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, a low res, the low res um, MFA program that's run by Greg Bordowitz. And I've never had a dedicated visual art studio before. And I started drawing this summer. And I've never been a person who drew ever. I mean, like here and there, but like never. But I started doing that. So I'm like, great, one more freaking thing added to the list. <laughs> It's like dilettante city. Um, but I don't know. So there's a kind of permission, but there's also the strangeness of like, what I wanted to say before is that I'll walk into a situation with a certain intention and then something else emerges that I didn't expect. I mean, I remember years ago, we were making a piece called Everyone in 2006, 2007, and we were doing this improvisation. And then suddenly all these words came to me and I had, you know, ran to the bathroom and I basically just in the bathroom, like on my phone, like typed out, or I don't think it was my phone. I think it was like actually a notebook because it was <laughs> 2006. We weren't really doing that yet on phones. Um, I just like wrote out what became a monologue that we then do in the show, right? That's not so, I don't think I'm like oh, the first person on the planet who's ever done that, but it's like, there is this suddenly an awareness that comes over me of like, oh, this idea that's coming has to be expressed in X form or Y form. It's not necessarily the thing that this room is even suggesting that we do, right? And I think that I feel, I think that I am able to give myself that permission, partly because when I moved to New York in 1996, 97, I had a live workspace for eight years so I could kind of do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted. And that was where I had my first evening length show. And so then when we lost that space, we, got, we were evicted in 2005. Uh, John Jaspers, who runs the dance program at uh, SL, uh, Sarah Lawrence, well, also had a studio, had his studio in the back of that same loft space. Um, I was able to kind of bring that live work attitude into my residency uh, experiences or rehearsal experiences or, you know, spaces that I was renting, just this kind of like, whatever needs to happen today in this room is what needs to happen. And if it's like that I need to nap, so be it. If it's that I need to sit here and watch Logan's Run, which was a big inspiration for my show, Agent Beauty Part Three. Um, I remember sitting and watching that movie with Jen Rosenblatt, who was in the piece. And I felt a little apologetic of like being like, we're just gonna sit here and watch this movie. And she was like, Miguel, just so you know, I feel like everything that we're doing right now is dance. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, right? Even though I had already given myself that permission, it was great to get it from someone else as well. So 
there's that. And then in terms of your question of like, what about this things? You know, you just have to create dumb restrictions. I mean, that's really the only way. Uh, part a lot of my practice is I I create temporal uh, boundaries or restrictions. I'm like, we're gonna do this improvisation for an hour, no matter what, even if it's like 40 minutes of shite, right? Uh, or I'm gonna write for the next 20 minutes. I I had a practice like couple years ago where I was writing, reading for 20 minutes, moving for 20 minutes, writing for 20 minutes, reading, moving, writing, 20 minutes, 20, 20, 20, 20, 20. And it's like just an arbitrary imposition that I put on myself. Um, and that's just a way of organizing time. It's, there's no big, like, uh, there's no huge rationale behind it. But I, I have found that that's the way that it's effective to sort of get like both give myself permission to do different things, but also sometimes isolate into the different things. Yeah, you mentioned a couple of times school. So I, I did want to touch on that. You um, took a 27 year break between starting and ending your undergrad career. Um, and you recently completed at Brown, you got your bachelor's and now you're back in school um, at getting your master's at, which I always mess up the name of this was School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Is that? Yeah, that's the oh, I always name. like flip it in some way. That's great. Yeah. So, and I, I read a little bit about sort of how you decided to go back to finish your undergrad and you could share some of that with us as well. But I am also curious about how you decided to keep going. Like yeah. what is your relationship to, to school right now, especially given the audience of this podcast is mostly graduate students. So, yeah. Well, when the pandemic hit, it, it was not lost on me that the only reason I knew I was gonna be okay financially was because I had a university job you know, set up already. I, I had a residency through Princeton University and they had offered me the opportunity to teach. And I took that opportunity and I'm really grateful I did because that really is how I was able to survive. Um, and also it was a great gig and those are great students. So like, duh, it's a kind of a no brainer. So I was like, okay, no, you know, <laughs> note to self, like you are able to fi survive financially right now, not because of your performing gigs, not because of your other kinds of teaching gigs, but because of this academic gig. Um, and then long story short, I was, I was recruited to apply to a different MFA program. And then I was like, I don't have a degree. They're like, I'm like, is it okay? And they're like, yeah, yeah. And then it turns out it wasn't okay that I didn't have a degree. So I was so resentful <laughs> of that, that I, that I, was like I want to I'm going to go to some other program and then my sister was basically the one who was like why don't you just finish college like why don't you just go back to brown uh she had also gone to brown and that's where I had started school I had started to, at brown I went there for two non-consecutive years I transferred to NYU Tisch undergrad in dance and then I dropped out of school altogether in 1993 to work professionally uh, as a dancer in a company um, so I reached out and I got in touch with the right people. Anyway, long story short, I went back and that was what, you know, last year it was like in Zoom school hell all day because I was either teaching at Princeton <laughs> or attending. I kept joking that I was in a menage a trois with the Ivy League. I was like, or I was like attending school, you know, and meanwhile, my boyfriend was also in school, like a different school, but he was like in the bedroom <laughs> in his Zoom school. So it was just like Zoom Academy all day, all night here. And then kind of once that got going, I was like, well, if I went, you know, a lot of why I was doing that was also kind of my father passed in 2019. There was for me this sense of like unfinished uh, work around my relationship with him. And a part of like the struggle between us for a long time had been the fact that I left school. So there was something in me that was like, I wanna go back to finish this, partly for my parents really. Uh, not because anyone's demanding that of me, but so I just thought, okay, so then I 
that became a real emotional part of it as well. And I'm really grateful that that happened. And then I, at some point in there, I was like, you know, if I'm just going to do this, then I want full academic unassailability. <laughs> like, I just don't want, I don't want this to be an issue ever again, because I have often wanted to go out for certain jobs, but I couldn't because of this, that, the degree issue. And, you know, for a long time, I think my ego was just like, well, they don't want me because if I am, then fuck them, you know? And it's like, unfortunately, you know, you want to play the game, then you got to play by the rules of the game, you know, which kind of just sucks, but it's, it's like, I just didn't want it to be an issue. And I was like, I'm not that special that I shouldn't have to go through the hoops that a lot of people have to go through. So once I kind of got over myself in that way, and then also I had actually been a guest artist. This is the, the huge hilarious thing at SAIC in that same program uh, in 2017. And I remember really liking it and thinking, okay, if I ever were going to do grad school, I think it would be this program because I like the vibe here. I like the mix of people who are here. And I, like I said before, I, it's Greg Bordowitz is the director and I have huge, huge respect for him. Yeah. And that's a, that's a program that allows for a lot of autonomy, right? Autonomy. And it's not a dance program. So right. I never wanted to get an MFA in dance. There's only like a couple MFAs in dance that I, that I've only ever been intrigued by, but it's a interdisciplinary studio art program you know, and I thought if I, I don't need to get my master's in dance. Like I've been working in dance for the last 30 years. Uh, if I were going to get a master's, I wanted it to be in an adjacent medium, you know, or in an, in not even the medium because of my work has incorporated all these kinds of elements an adjacent logic, like an adjacent mm -hmm. uh, logos and a, a different epistemology of itself, which I think is, is, it is really interesting to see how different it is coming out of the visual art uh, history to study compared to what I know of in dance or theater. Yeah, I mean, what's coming up for you? And you, you've just started in the last month, is that I right? I did the, well, no, I, I, it's three summers plus, okay. in, plus three summers. remote work okay. during. So I was actually in Chicago this summer for the first year. Um, you know, just real quick, the, one of the most basic, radically different things is the phenomenon of the art studio. You have your own space that you're expected to go to and work in and develop your work in. And then there's the phenomenon of the studio visit, this thing where another artist or your peers come and spend 45 minutes to an hour with you getting really deep into your work. That is not a practice in MFA programs for dance. I don't know for theater, I can't speak so much about theater, but it is not a practice, this idea. And it's not about defending your work intellectually for an hour. It's literally just articulating your work, having someone look at it and then give them, give you feedback based on their expertise and experience. And that is a pretty high level of discursive exchange that doesn't happen in other uh, performing arts programs. Usually when I'm invited to teach an MFA art uh, dance programs, I'm there to like make a piece on students in a fucking week, which is stupid, um, or teach like, you know, a master class or something, right? Which can be useful, but it's not the same as me going in somewhere and talking with you about your work and seeing what do you want to do with your work? And is it succeeding? Like, are you actually doing the thing, <laughs> Feldenkrais? Christ, are you doing the thing that you think that you're doing? Absolutely. Um, before we run out of time, I really would love to get to your podcast. Um, yes. You mentioned a couple of times um, 
uh, sort of one of the main reasons you wanted to go back to school was to get this degree so that you could have, you know, you like notice the financial security that's coming with a, a, a job um, at a university. And so, yeah, so your podcast, um, Are You For Sale, talks about the ethical engagements between dance making and philanthropy. And I'm yeah. curious specifically, two questions. One is how, like, how has the making of that podcast changed how you want to relate to money going forward? And perhaps because we're out of time, I'll just say both questions now. Um, uh, do you have advice for younger performance makers, maybe earlier career performance makers on like how to be thinking about money right now as we move into <laughs> the next phase of our lives? Isn't that awful? The first thing that came to my mind is Mary Rich. No, uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so grim. I'm like, I'm like some horrible mother of like an Upper East Side debutante with that answer. Um, I, I I always feel so uh, wary of giving younger people advice because I feel like they're going to figure it out way better than anything I could say because my the world I moved into as a young person is so different than the world we live in now. So I, I don't like being this like sermon on the mount kind of person. I'm much more interested in learning from multiple directions than just kind of just, I, I'm happy to share all the information I have and I can just bear witness to my story and give that over to other people. That it's what I'm good, but like for me to be like, you need to be doing it. It's like, I don't fucking know what you need to do. I don't know you, you know? It's uh, <laughs> so there's that. Um, but it is kind of fucked up my relationship to money, honestly, doing the podcast. I feel if as much or if, well, more confused because I don't think I even knew what the systems that I was about to engage in studying were until I really went into the research of them in a deep way, which is what I've been doing now for two years. And I feel less clear now <laughs> than I ever did because I, I, it, it, there's just, I mean, I've always known that there is no clean money, right? Like there's no such thing as clean money. Um, and I've also known that any relationship to institution is fraught. But even if you're like, I'm going to do work off the grid, it's like, well, someone's going to turn the lights on and someone's going to have to collect the tickets and someone's going to have to sleep, sweep the floor. So guess what? You are going to be dealing with someone that's not just you, right? So there's kind of DIY fantasy that somehow you're exempt from human interaction doesn't exist, right? So, so uh, all those kinds of things. And similarly, there's no world that exists without money on some level that's undergirding all, all kinds of movement and traffic, um, be it that of labor or just re, you know infrastructural resource or just anything that just allows you to live, right? So I, I, I mean, I feel like it's, I'm really excited to be part of what feels like a growing conversation in the performance field. It's a conversation that's existed in the visual art field because there's been the phenomenon of institutional critique in the visual art world. And because the stakes there usually are so much bigger, people are able to have like the big deal, big, big, big adult conversations about cash. Because the stakes have usually been smaller in terms of just dollar amounts, people are so like, oh, thank you so much for the gig that they don't want to speak back to the institution necessarily because they're scared they're going to lose opportunity because the opportunities are so scarce to begin with. So I'm trying to sort of get us out of that somewhat infantilized, infantilized way of thinking and not to just be like, yeah, 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 give me my check, you know, <laughs> kind of thinking, but more like what, what can we do here as an ecosystem to think through this better, how, how it affects us on a personal level and what kind of, what are the assumptions that we've been inheriting for generations now that are also shaped by the context of American obsession with capitalism and, you know, all this sort of insane, terrible, 
harmful things that come with that um and how do we uh how do we undo some of that so i i this podcast has allowed me to 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 have a really large scale view of the condition i personally am not great at the solution part of it yet i'm here to listen to other people's solutions and it's also part of the difficulty of the solution is because i have yet to fully let go of the kind of work that i want to make which is still work that exists sometimes at scale sometimes small um i like work that exists in theater spaces some people are like really anti-theater i'm not i think it's a great space to 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 practice attention i see attention as not a passive practice i don't think sitting in a chair watching something is a passive practice i think it's a fallacy um i don't necessarily want to make all my work outside i don't want to necessarily make all my work on site um, I think all spaces are site specific and site responsive. So, you know, these are the kinds of things that I'm really grappling with because cool. But then the moment I bring other people into the process, I'm right back in the question of ethics, labor, money, compensation, fundraising, grant writing, you know, unless I wanted to make solos for the rest of my life and just teach at a university, which I don't want to do. I want to make work with humans because I live in a world with humans. That's a beautiful place to end. Um, is there anything that you, um, anything we didn't ask you that you want to share and or anything you want to plug in this moment? It feels, oh. like, it feels like a question that like feels old at this point. I'm like plugging feels like something from five years ago, but if there is something that you'd like to plug. <laughs> no, just the, po the podcast is like the thing I'm trying to plug really honestly. Great. That's the thing. So just please listen, go to are you for sale podcast.com and catch up on the episodes and there's a couple more episodes coming in november and Amazing. then we might do a second season Woo. we'll see it's telling me to yeah. make it so i don't know we'll, see. <laughs> well it's been great so far and um thank you so much for joining us on tuesday and also today it's really lovely to hear you talk more about your work and to get a chance to work with you um in a small way yes thank you so much miguel Thanks a lot. It was great to talk to you guys. Have a great day. You too. <laughs> Bye. Bye. The Performance Lab podcast was brought to you by Contemporary Performance Network in association with the Sarah Lawrence College Theater MFA program. For more information, please visit our websites at www.contemporaryperformance.com or www.slctheater.com.